0: This is from verse 13 of 1 John chapter 5 through to verse 21. It's the end of the series uh, in 1 John and I hope it's been uh, encouraging and helpful uh, for you, for us. Thank you, Brian. I'm glad you're on the front row. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have have what we asked of Him. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children... Keep yourselves from idols. Well, concluding words from the pastoral letter of John the Apostle, the author of that great block of Scripture of John, Gospel of 1, 2, 3 John and Revelation. Five amazing insights. Letters, loving letters. We've carried this theme of mending, uh, particularly through uh, this series, that recognition as we started this letter back in the summer, that J- Peter was called fishing, John was called whilst mending nets. And that sense within it and within the pastoral letters of John wanting to mend us out of this time and in this time of uncertainty to be mended, to be reassured, to be strengthened for the tasks that he has. Uh, Christmas is one of those times where mending isn't always top of our agenda. Yes, in the old school when we got the old fairy lights out, remember those days with bulbs that unscrewed and they never worked and they always broke and you needed the fuse bulb and everything. I remember hours spent as a child trying to problem solve it. We mended them. But mending isn't always so popular that we live often in this time, and I, I think, I wonder just even at the start whether this is something the Lord would say to someone here, that our culture and what it, not just about materialism, things we consume, but sometimes about people, would throw away and discard more readily than keep. Something that has become old or tattered or broken, beaten up, is cast away, cast off. Do you know what I mean? That's not what God does with us. He loves to mend, to restore, to reclaim and refashion and bring again beauty out of brokenness. That's all that you hear today. May you know that in the hands of the living God, just as we read at the start of the service with Elizabeth, who was older and childless, yet God was at work through her, through Mary. God does not cast away. He loves the broken. At home, I have a a box Tucked away, that moves with me, and in that box, maybe you have a similar box or place you put things in. It are some treasured letters, correspondence, cards, sometimes birthday cards, or uh, that people have written nice things. I don't keep the nasty ones; uh, just that would be weird. Uh, but there are times in life when I was overseas, and people wrote letters in the days before broadband. Uh, I've kept these letters. And whenever I come across this box or one, uh, I get a new kind of card or something that I just really cherish. It goes in that box, and I just take a bit of time to go down memory lane, and it's a precious, precious moment. Letters are powerful. They really are. It's not junk mail, is it? Unsolicited and unwanted, precious. There was a young pastor of the Confessing Church in Germany in the 1930s and a small and yet courageous group of people were standing opposed to Hitler and National Socialism at that time. It was a lonely, difficult era. Afterwards, when asked what sustained their resistance, what kept them going, the pastor said quickly, we prayed and we sang and we wrote many letters to each other. We know that the early church sang and prayed. We've been doing that ourselves. But we also are recipients of letters. Paul was a champion of it. He was writing all the time. And indeed, John in these letters that we're reading, And this pastor goes on to say, all three actions suggest a vigorous community of solidarity in which members that uphold each other in difficult circumstances, such actions assure each person that I am not alone. I know we now have texts and WhatsApps and emails and emojis and all those kind of things. But it's great when we support and strengthen each other i don't know if you've noticed that john is really committed in writing these letters but emphasizes six times in the course of this letter with these words in chapter 1 i haven't put the text but you could if you have the the phone or the the bible with you you can find it these in 1 john chapter 1 verse 4 we write this to make our joy complete. 2.1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Chapter 2. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Chapter two twenty one I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is there is no lie in the truth. Chapter two verse twenty six I write these things to you that those who are trying to deceive you five thirteen, we've just read, I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to know these things. And even though they are reading his writings, he emphasizes, I write this to you. Precious things that he wants to communicate. Essentials that if only they could hold onto and grasp, they will be helped in the task of mending and moving from brokenness to the beauty of who God created us to be. Someone wrote this, I am writing in summation of all these things that John has written of I write, I write, I write. He summarizes it like this, I am writing because you are true believers, but there are deceivers in your midst, and I want you to be rock solid confident in your present possession of eternal life as regenerate, born again children of God, so that you are not drawn away after sin. And if this letter has that effect, my joy will be complete. So at the heart of his reason for writing is the desire to help them know they are born again, established and founded in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that they now have a new spiritual life, eternal life. He wants us to know it, to remember it, to remind ourselves, to revisit this truth. Because the battle of life can erode it. But I write this to you. That the very life of God, whether you have doubts or a full assurance, to be remembering of the truth. As I spoke of last time, of that outward evidentially based certainty of the gospel of Jesus Christ who has come amongst us. We read the prophecies and the story at Christmas. And all through the gospels of what he did. But also that inner conviction of the work of the Spirit in our life, that witness and testimony. He writes that three themes of belief, obedience, and love are worked out. That we are called to pursue obedience, faithfulness in action, to love others, particularly our sisters and brothers, and to be deeply sure of who he is, and now who we are. I pray we wouldn't doubt because of an ignorance of God's word and his promises. There'd be no apprehension because of a faulty theology, thinking, have I, have I blown it with God? Is he, is he angry with me? Eternal life is a gift and certain that we won't doubt because of hate or the actions of others, that we would flee to Jesus. We're told right at the start that he is the word of life. He is eternal life. Whether feelings come or go, remember, they can be deceiving. Our confidence, our trust is in Jesus. Isn't it? I'm sure you know that. His word is true. He wants us to be mended. Thanks, Sarah, it's not quite clicking on. But he also speaks of of prayer in these concluding uh, verses. So, we read in 14 to 17, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that what we have asked is of him. How's your praying? Not to incite guilt, not to make you think, oh gosh, come on, I should have been better. But John, in this letter of being married, wants to remind us of this assurance. As part of the gift of eternal life, we have another confidence of answered prayer. The prayer is one of those, those things that it helps us. Um, Unlock the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power, of all that God is and all that God has is at the disposal of prayer. And and it's a gift to us as we communicate, as we intercede, as we petition, as we listen, as we express all that is on our heart, we trust in Him. John has already referenced in chapter 3 that that, uh, God answers our prayers when we we seek to keep his commands, that we we do the things that please him. And in verse 14, ask that which is according to his will. This confidence, this certainty of of the right for believers, that we know when we pray that he hears us. That great saint of, uh, of the 19th century, you've heard of George Muller? down in Bristol, a great man of prayer who refused a regular salary and support for himself or the ministries that he led. And uh, he said this, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. I like that. If you think of God as just someone, oh, go on. You know, I've petitioned enough. Oh, I'm fed up of you banging on my door now. Go on. He's so not like Scrooge. But a good Good Father. Prayer is laying hold of of his willingness. Scripture is full of, of the ambiguity and the challenge of prayer. In Daniel, we hear that he had to contest in prayer and keep going and crying out because there's a spiritual battle raging. But the prayers were answered after a number of days, persevering. We know, and I'm sure amongst us, there's as I know some of the stories of your life, that there's consistent devoted, longing prayer over months and years. And there's no trite answer to that other than to say, keep on praying and knowing that it's laying hold of His willingness. We also know that God is entirely good and to ask of Him something that is contrary to His will or ultimately would not be good for us, He is able to say no. He is able to say yes. Sometimes, as that old adage goes, sometimes we are in the place of waiting. Part of the reason why we read Scripture is to know His will. It really helps direct and help us understand His kingdom, His purposes, His plans. I urge you to keep referring to Scripture, allowing it to seep and soak into your life. It implicitly helps us as we pray. Romans 12, 2, Paul teaches us that it tells us what God's will is. It is good and pleasing and perfect. His will for us as individuals and for His world. To pray. Now, I just have to move on to the, the verses in 16 and 17. I'll read them again, and I just have to give you a caveat before this. These particular verses, this isn't a cop-out, it's just the reality, are some of the more difficult verses in the Bible. If you think I'm going to give you a definitive answer, I'll try, but it's still a bit perplexing. Are you ready for this? I'll give it my best shot. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Right, here we go. How do we work this through? John seems to differentiate between a brother who is sinning a sin but doesn't die And then someone whose sin brings death. Now I know in all these answers, there's a whole lot of questions thrown up of saying, are some sins more serious than others? Are some sins unforgivable? Have I sinned in that way? What happens if I do? What happens next? Is John really saying that there's no answer to prayer for some people? Hold those thoughts. We have to look at what he means by death. Is he speaking of physical death? Someone has dropped dead, the heart stop beating, they're dead. Or is he talking about a spiritual death? People dead spiritually, but still living and breathing. We know that spiritual death is as real as physical death, it's just that we need to be born again, to be brought into eternal life through Jesus Christ. He is the rescuer, the savior, the deliverer. I think it helps just to have a, a mindset that in one of these instances, he's talking about a brother, a believer, and then I'll come on to the whether they question the second part is about an unbeliever. I tread carefully on this, and I, I, I just help these, hope these words help us. I think that John has spiritual death in mind, not physical. I think that this is where he's driving at. That in the gospel, it talks about those who are dead in their sin, and Paul would, but, uh, and those of us who are alive in Christ. And there are two different people in view. What am I saying? That if there are brothers and sisters who are in Christ, who are believers, they can fall into sin, and it can affect us, it can hinder our work, and cause all sorts of, of problems. We're told earlier on to confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us. But knowing that sin is in our life really prevents and hinders our walk with God. The Hebrew writer, get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. We can stumble and fall in sin, but we can come and confess that sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us. But I don't think as a Christian sins that our salvation is in jeopardy. I don't think that if a believer sins, that that would then mean we lose our salvation and fall back into spiritual death, because I think that would undermine the once and for all, wondrous work of Christ on the cross, that is once and for all. Are you with me? It's being recorded on video and audio, so you can re-listen to this if uh, you don't. I am utterly convinced that Christ's atonement of his advocacy that he died in our place is sufficient to rescue us, to save us completely. Full stop. Underlined. Because we have faith in him and he gifts us eternal life. So then he moves on and says if you, if you as a believer, see another sister or brother, Entering into a lifestyle, a practice, a habit, a way of sin. He just gives us some practical advice. He says, don't go and gossip about it. Don't go and talk to others you know, out of pastoral concern. First port of call, he says, to talk to God about them. Talk to God about your sister and brother. Pray for their restoration. Intercede fast if necessary Because God's will is that we should walk in obedience and humbly before Him. That's His will for us, isn't it? He's just said if we pray in accordance with His will, that is the right place to start. If you recognize a problem in the church, don't start um, kind of um, being militant about it and agitating. Talk to God. Talk to God. That's the place where we find His willingness Intervene. Pray for their restoration. Pray that the Lord would give them renewed life and call them back, restored joy and vitality in their salvation, rather than slipping away or backsliding, or find themselves entering further, uh, journeying further and further away from that song we sang of Jesus be the center. That their sins would not lead them away into half-heartedness. That we would walk with spiritual disciplines. But recognize they're not going to lose their salvation. Then John goes on and this is where it gets hard because he doesn't really give us much clarity. He then addresses uh, a sin that he says leads to death. Everyone takes a big, what's that? He doesn't say that one committing this sin is a brother, interestingly, or a sister. And of this sin that is at nameless at the moment, John says, I am not saying he should pray about that. Note that he doesn't command us not to pray, but he is perhaps doubtful or uncertain of whether it would do any good. Pray by any means. He doesn't say don't do it. But the question remains then, what is this sin that leads to death? There are three kind of main views of this. First of that is a specific deadly sin, high-handed sin, sinful, sin that is so willful and deliberate, sin that is such serious nature, that results in physical death. People would refer to the account and the story of Ananias in Sapphira in Acts 5, or the incestuous man in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, or even indeed the Corinthians abusing the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 that have died because they have held willful sin, that the consequence of that has led to death. The second view is that of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We hear about that in in Matthew 12 and Mark 3, that Jesus seems to be saying that if there's a deliberate and knowledgeable and willful and verbal and continual rejection of the truth to which the Spirit bears witness, it leads to a hardening of the heart to a degree that prayer will not help and leads to death. That it is the unforgivable sin to blaspheme the Spirit, says Jesus. If you are alert to this and asking the question, you've not committed it. Just need to say that. I don't want anyone on the door to say, how am I? The very fact that you're here and wanting to learn says you haven't. The Spirit has not left you. The third take on this is, is that there is a total rejection of the gospel of Christ. That this sin that he is is referring to is the sin of the false teachers, those who are around in the early church like hyenas and predators, who willfully and habitually oppose the witness of God concerning the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. That one is not called a brother, but someone who is tearing at the very fabric of belief and the community of faith that God has called into being. Someone explains it like this, that these false teachers manifest the spirit of Antichrist. We've had that referred already in 1 John. That they've separated themselves from the true church and perverted or rejected the apostolic message of redemption in Christ. In deliberately rejecting the incarnate Son of God in whom eternal life is freely available, they commit themselves to a spiritual attitude and course of action that could only be characterized as sin unto death. In other words, it's to lead people entirely the wrong way, away from life and hope and Jesus. I don't know which you think is being referred to. I tend towards this last Option. It seems to be whom John is, is challenging and urging the church to recognize about those who would seek to undermine and sow seeds of doubt and cause people to give up on their walk for Jesus. He says, those, those are dead. I want to just concludes uh, when with a little word from uh, a great kind of saint ch spurgeon i have put it on the screen when he was addressing his pastors in the college and he wrote of the power of prayer might not we win more victories if we more constantly use this weapon of all prayer all hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in importunate supplication Beloved brethren, let us pray. We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. I would sooner see you eloquent with God than with men. Prayer links us with the eternal, the omnipotent, the infinite, and hence is our chief resort. Resolve to serve the Lord and to be faithful to his cause. For then you may boldly appeal to him for succor. Be sure that you are with God and that you may be sure that God is with you. Isn't that encouraging? May it be so. Keep praying in his will. In verse 18, he, he comes on to reminding us that we are born of God, that it is our birthright. Listed there are the times in this letter that those who are born of God, and he, uh, I've listed out these 13 times, those who are born of God understand their birthright of how much God has accomplished, the abundance of His goodness, of the privilege, the reality of every one of us who trust Jesus Christ. An amazing birthright in which we belong. We know that we are welcomed by him. And as such, because we are born again, we aren't now under the sway of the compulsion to sin that we need not keep on sinning. No longer is sin the dominant factor in our life. The power of sin is broken and vanquished by the cross. That We have genuine choice now. And John calls us to live in the power of the Spirit, affirming the purity of our lives. Yes, we aim for perfection, but know that that is only found in Christ. But we are nevertheless committed to walking in the holy ways to learn and to grow. That he protects us. In John 17, Jesus says, While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. In 1 Peter, you are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And now in Jude, to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy. It's part of our birthright as believers. And he contrasts that with this, the stark reality of those who aren't in Christ are still in the sway and the thrall and slaves to the evil one, to Satan, the devil, powerless and helpless. We know that we are children of God. We know and we are held firm by God, an inner assurance, spiritual death has no claim on us, that his gift to us is certain and sure, no one can snatch us from his hands, and the certainty that sin does not dominate our experience anymore, we belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to us. I pray that after these words and this letter, we are mended to know that this is true. Not willful thinking, but based on the certainty of Jesus. To know that this is the birthright and the destination and the glory and the joy of every believer. I want to close with just this little story Spoke of someone receiving in the post in the post a a a card from a friend, and on the back of the postcard it said these words: "I am the one Jesus loves." The recipient said, "I smiled when I saw the return address for my strange friend. Excels at these pious slogans. When I called him, though, he told me the slogan came from an author, Brendan Manning." And Manning had referred to Jesus' closest friend on earth, the disciple named John, identified in the Gospels as the one Jesus loved. Manning said, if John were to be asked, what is your primary identity in life, he would not reply, I'm a disciple, I'm an apostle, an evangelist, and an author of one of the four Gospels and of these letters, but rather, beloved, I am the one Jesus loves. What would it mean if I asked myself if I came to to that place where I saw my primary identity in life as the one Jesus loves? How differently would I view myself at the end of the day as I looked in the mirror? I am the one Jesus loves. Sociologists have a theory of the looking glass self. If you become what what the most uh, sorry. You become what the most important person in your life, whether that's a wife or father or boss, thinks of you. How would my life change if I truly believed these words, the astounding truth of the Bible's astonishing words about God's love for each one of us, if I looked in the mirror and saw what God sees? Brendan Manning, in conclusion, says this. It tells the story of an Irish priest walking on a tour of his rural parish in Ireland, sees an old farmer, a peasant, kneeling by the side of the road, praying. Impressed, the priest says to the man, you must be very close to God. Interrupted, the peasant, the old man, looks up from his prayers, thinks for a moment, and then smiles, yes, he's very fond of me. beloved, beloved beloved. May these words mend our thoughts and heart in our journey with him. Let's pray.